into the theology pit. Theology pit. You're falling in the theology pit. everyone, welcome back to The Theology Pit. This is Theology out of Pittsburgh, and not to be confused with a bottomless pit, because you know what we say here, when you fall into a bottomless pit, you die of dehydration. Yeah, that's it. But this is a theological pit, where you don't die of dehydration. Now, you're probably saying, Sam, I've heard you say that a million times. Why did it sound funny? Well, actually, because I was reading it. On the official The Theology Pit mug. And these mugs will be available for sale at samsonstick.com pretty soon. But you're also going to be able to get them through uh, Patreon for donating. And if you haven't gone to Patreon, uh, I guess that would be www.patreon.com forward slash the theology pit to make a donation to get your very own mug. And right now, um, the donation's a little high for the mug, and I'm going to be adjusting all this stuff, and I'll be pulling it down. But uh, pretty soon, um, it'll be up on the website. You'll be able to purchase as many of them as you want and support the Theology Pit that way. I'm also working on t-shirt designs and, you know, other type of fun stuff. But the phrase on there, when you fall into a bottomless pit, you die of dehydration, is sitting right there on your mug so you can actually drink whatever you want. Um, I drank ice water in it and it kept it cold and wet. And now I'm drinking coffee and it's keeping it hot and wet. I'm telling you, incredible mugs. Incredible mugs. And at the Theology Pit, you can be hydrated spiritually. You're hydrating your brain here. You are, you're thinking, you're working through stuff. We're talking about things. So you can be physically drinking from the Theology Pit mug as you're mentally drinking from the Theology Pit fountain. And this is part seven of our Bible already, our Bible series. Can you believe it? And this, today, this episode, we are going to be getting into the Gnostic Gospels. We were talking about, like, you know, all the different ones out there and why do we have, you know, these particular 27 books in our New Testament? Why don't we have the other ones? Well, today, we're going to talk about some of the other ones. We're going to look at them and compare them to what we saw in the New Testament. And if you remember back when we were talking about the intentional errors and unintentional errors and ancient literature and those sort of things, keep that in mind. That's going to be very useful to you while you're listening to this particular theology pit. And if you haven't, I encourage you to go back to the beginning of the series and take a listen before you come up to this point. But you could still listen now and it'll still be awesome. slurping my hot coffee here today. Well, this is a beautiful November day in Western Pennsylvania. Thank you again for tuning into the Theology Pit. So, let's talk about Apocryphal Gospels. Uh, Let's not assume that everybody listening right now even knows what I mean when I say Apocryphal Gospels. Now, a couple corrections from the last Theology Pit when I was listening to it. I, I, I kept mixing up apocalyptic and apocryphal. Apocalyptic has to do with, um, think like end time stuff, end of the world type stuff, where apocryphal means like hidden writings, totally different things. Uh, but I kept, I, you know, I, I messed those up and I apologize if I do it again today. Also, 
Yes, I'm very aware that there were 13 colonies um, in in the United States that that started it, and not 12. It's just whenever you know you start talking uh, Christian history, Christianity, those sort of things, and you got the 12 tribes of Israel, the 12 disciples, all you know the number 12 floating around in your head. Sometimes that just comes out. I apologize for that, but. What we're going to talk about today is we're going to talk about um, some of the apocryphal gospels, um, some probably unknown, and some you will recognize the name. For example, the Gospel of Thomas. Everybody has recognized the the Gospel of Thomas. Um, if you are a fan of the Da Vinci Code, you will be aware of the Gospel of Thomas. Now, I only saw the movie once, I think, so I'm not sure how much they really mentioned it in the movie, but I remember reading the book and them talking about the um, the Gospel of Thomas. So, people are familiar with at least that Gospel that's out there. Now, the contents of that you know, can vary, and, and we're going to talk about that, but we're going to start off talking about um, the uh, what's called the Proto-Evangelium of James. And Proto-Evangelium means first gospel. And the reason why it's named this is because out of these uh, Gnostic gospels, so to speak, uh, this would be one that would be considered the oldest. Okay. Um, so, we could kind of move into that area. And, and I know... Um, well, I, I don't want to make any assumptions of what you're thinking whenever I say that it's it's the oldest. Uh, out of the Gnostic Gospel collection, it would be considered the oldest. And through what we've talked about before, through uh, paleography, through um, dating, through internal evidence, external evidence, what the scholars have you know, uh, assumed with it, that this one seems to be older than any of the other apocryphal works. Now... I'm going to send a little teaser out there for further episodes right now. None of the Gospels I'm going to talk about, none of these books here, none of the Gnostic writings that I'm going to talk about today were considered contenders to be in the New Testament at all. They're, they're not even named. If you want to do a Google search on your own before I you know get to it, you're more than welcome to um, about what was the biggest contender, and we will be talking about it. We'll be reading through, we'll be talking about it. One that actually, I mean, I guess you could say technically made it on a list of consideration. But none of the ones that we're talking about now have. And, you know, we haven't even gotten to the criteria of the whys of the ones that we do have in the New Testament, the 27. But I want to go through these because if people have never read the Gnostic Gospels, if you've never read it, read, read it, yeah, I, my mouth just does not want to work this morning. If you have never read any of the apocryphal literature and you're not sure what it says, you might be under the assumption that it reads a certain way or that, you know, it presents itself in a, in a certain way that is similar to what we have in the New Testament. You may say, well, Sam, I've read through the New Testament. Or you might be someone who who never has. I mean, there are a lot of Christians out there that have never read the Bible, that have never even read the New Testament. You know, you would think as as a Christian, 
you know, the New Testament would be your your big thing. I mean, I understand the Old Testament because, you know, it, it can be a little more difficult because it's written with an Eastern mindset, where the New Testament is written with a Western mindset. So, us being, you know, Westerners, we understand the writing, we understand the argumentation, we understand that type of literature coming forward and, and what's going on. And um, it's culturally more similar to us, even though it is, it is removed and it's, you know, you have to understand the culture of that time, but it's, the old Testament is much more removed from us than the new Testament. Um, I've heard missionaries discussing whenever they do missionary work in Muslim countries, that a lot of the times they will use the old Testament and not the new Testament to evangelize because the old Testament culturally matches their culture more closely than the New Testament does. Um, the New Testament in, in its in its its argumentation and the way that it's presenting things, it's very logical. I'm not saying that the Old Testament's illogical. I'm just saying that the emphasis on the New Testament argumentation is very uh, very logical and very Greek. In, in its approach, where the Old Testament is very emotional. And I'm not, I don't want to say that pejoratively because emotions are a big part. But think about it this way if um, you are having a discussion with someone who is of the Eastern faith, or from just uh, just from the Eastern world, let's let's say, and you're just sitting there and you're just giving, hey, here's fact A, here's fact B, here's fact C, therefore D. You know, you're giving you're giving like a straight up like syllogism, like you know, if if A then B, and if B and A then you know C is the conclusion. You know, two premises and a conclusion in my syllogism. Um, for us, we can look at that and say, oh, okay, that makes sense. I agree with it. An Eastern mindset would look at it and think, well, wouldn't even so much look at the the argument but the way you are presenting the argument and if you are doing it impassionately if if there is no excitement if there is no passion they would question not whether it was true but whether you believed it because whether you believed it would give more evidence or just as much evidence that it was true. Because if you really believe something, you are excited about it, you are passionate about it. If someone says something contrary, you get angry, you fly off the handle. Um, if, if you really want to get your point across, you are screaming, you are yelling, and you are demanding that the other person acknowledges it and that the other person understands and the other person knows. And somebody from an Eastern mindset. So if you are talking to them about anything, really, I mean, it doesn't even have to be, you know, about Christ, but just anything in general, but you're doing it in such a way that there just is no passion. Uh, they are immediately going to ignore what you're saying, or they're just going to chalk it up to you're a liar. You, because you don't believe it. You say that this is true, but if it was true, then you would believe it and you would be acting a certain way and, and you would want to fight for it, but you don't. So, yeah, so you have that kind of uh, thing going on. Um, there's a, uh, a gentleman at work um, that I've been talking to, and he's from Uganda. And, you know, with the right now, this is before the, the election of um, uh, 2016 in November. And he 
really likes Donald Trump. And the reason why, and, and he hasn't said this out outright to me, but knowing that, you know, he has a, an, an Eastern mindset, um, because he says, you know, Donald Trump, um, just, just speaks his mind, says it from the heart. He just really, you know, tells it how it is. And he's just, you know, it's because he speaks, you know, very over the top, very, um, you know, boisterously. He's just very, you know, it's very passionate and very just, you know, we look at that and, and, you know, as, as a Western mindset, and they're just like, man, this guy is just way reaching way over. I mean, he is just like, you know, I will not only be the greatest, but I will be the bestest greatest that there everest was. You know, I mean, he just, you know, in the universe and it's just, and he's just like, he's so over the top for us that it turns us off where anyone with an Eastern mindset, an Eastern background that appeals to them. They're like, yes, yes, this is somebody I can get behind. The, the content doesn't matter. And the way that, you know, Hillary Clinton is, I mean, she just comes across as very robotic and we are not going to stand for this type of thing, you know, and, and it's like she has... Uh, she has no. She is a robot. Basically, is is what it is. And for people with an Eastern mindset, they look at that and just say, "She's well, she's probably lying because she doesn't even, you know, believe what she is." And you know, there are different reasons for the way that they're they're both reacting. I understand that, but I'm just trying to tell you from an Eastern perspective the way that that's being viewed. So. Whenever you discuss things and you read things and you look at things and and stuff and you know one mindset is really going to appeal from one to the other. So when you're reading the Old Testament, you are going to see a lot of Eastern, a lot of emotion, and people from that culture and from that time period are extremely emotional. Now with the Western side of it, you know, with them being very logic and things like that. So when you're reading through the Gnostic Gospels, you're going to get this interesting mix because they are a Western mindset of wanting to put forth these facts and in this way, and you can see that in the way that they're writing, but they are writing about people from an Eastern background. So they are going to have a lot of, you know, over the top emotional stuff that we'll get into where they are just like, I mean, you know, they, they stub their toe on a, on a rock on the road and just start screaming, Oh, woe is me. I am wretched for thou art knowest that I, you know, suck or whatever. You know, I mean, they just, they really go over the top with it. And you're like, dude, you just stubbed your toe. Like it's cool. Like, you know, the whole universe isn't against you, but no, to them, Ah, the universe hates me and the Lord above thinks that I am awful. And, you know, and it's like, ah, cause you just stubbed your toe. I mean, uh, and of course I'm being hyperbolic with that, but, uh, but that, that, that type of language is in there. So when you see that type of stuff, I understand that they are writing in a, I don't want to say caricature, but we would say, you know, like if, if I was writing, for example, a, a, a story and I was writing it about like, you know, a black American perspective or something, you would expect me to, to have them speak in a certain vernacular. All right. In a, in a certain like cultural way, you know, and not in, you know, a, a white American a speech pattern. You know, I mean, the way that I talk is extremely white American. And sometimes, you know, because I'm from the Pittsburgh area here, I, I can slip into that Pittsburghese, which I try not to do on, you know, these shows. But if I did, it'd be something like, you know, we're going to go downtown to see Donny Iris and get some pants and that. You know, and you just might be listening. If you're not from the Pittsburgh area, you have no idea what I said. If you are from the Pittsburgh area, you'd be like, man, sounds sounds right to me. You know, I mean, I like some Donny Iris, you know, or something like out of distillers, you know, I mean. 
mean, it doesn't, you know, it doesn't so much bother you, but there's a certain vernacular in a certain way that you, that you write and that, and we always have to add that on the end of every, and anything pretty much. I mean, it's, you know, like in, in Canada, you get the A, like take off, eh? All right. So let's jump into this here. Sorry. I had to take a little slurp of coffee there. Okay. So what we have going on now is um, the Proto-Evangelium of James. And I'm going to have to find a place to put this stuff so that I can actually read and be you know, close enough to the microphone. We're going to be able to hear. Um, now, this is out of my uh, work of the church fathers, the Anti-Nicene Fathers. And this is in the Apocryphal Gospel and Acts. Okay, so let me flip forward to it. Um, the, I mean, the, the notes on it are, you know, very unimpressive in, in talking about, um, you know, where, when it was published, where, you know, where they think it came from, the people that translated it, those sort of things. Not, not too much to see there. Um, within these, you get uh, the... I mean, you get the additional detail whenever you have books like this about, you know, those sort of things. It's not just like, like, I think if you were to buy it online, you would probably just get like the book itself, maybe a preface talking about a few things, but each one of these has, so it's almost like the, there's this, the, the introductory notice is its own section before you even get to um, some of this stuff. So um, the Proto-Evangelium of James here talks about... Um, when Jesus was born, okay, but it's speaking, but it's going back a generation, okay, because it's focusing on not just Jesus, but also on Mary and on Mary's parents, okay? So, what happens is, according to legend, according to this, you're, you're starting out with Jesus's grandparents on his mother's side, okay? Uh, I'm going to call him uh, Joachim because I, I think that's the way that you pronounce it, and um, Anna, okay? Um, you know, I think it, later on it got changed to Anne. It could just be Anne. Um, I, I talked about uh, St. Anne being the, the you know, patron saint of um, precious metals and miners, and um, how Martin Luther, his father had a mining company, so St. Anne was the, uh, the, the saint that, you know, um, his family you know, um, uh, asked for veneration to, you know, supplication through, through prayer, those sort of things. And you'll start to see where some of this comes from as we're going through the Gnostic gospels. But, um, he's the one, or she's the one that, um, he called out to when he almost got hit by lightning. But, um, go back to the series I did on salvation. I want to say around, um, number four, 14 or 15 in the series, uh, where I talk about Luther and I tell his story. You'll hear more about that. But anyways, basically here's what's going on is that, um, they have no kids. Okay. No children at all. Now, uh, maybe I should get into a little bit of Mariology here. Um, it is, it is said, and I, th I believe this is a dogma in the Roman Catholic Church, that uh, Mary was immaculately conceived. Now, the immaculate conception of Christ was that, and everybody knows that one, that, you know, he had, he had no father, just the, the you know, Holy Spirit um, uh, overshadowed Mary, and uh, she became pregnant. The immaculate conception of Mary 
is that God supernaturally uh, preserved her from the stain of sin. So, in that assumption, then what that means is that her parents had to be something special. At least her mom had to be something special also because, you know, um, in order for this to happen. Now, uh, the reason being is because Jesus was without sin. He was perfect. And um, therefore, there had to be a perfect vessel for him to come into. So basically, with with the Mariology and Roman Catholic theology, they just kind of pushed it back one generation because then you have to ask, well, what about, you know, Anne's mother or Anna's mother. We're going to just use Anna for today because of uh, that's that's the way she's referred to in all of this literature. So um, what happened here was that um, uh, Joachim and Anna uh, had no children. Okay. And so um, Joachim went to uh, uh, register with his people and make a sacrifice to the Lord. Okay. And he went up there and they said to him, um, you can't do this, you know, and they're like, you know, why? And he's, they're like, because this is only for, you know, people that actually have kids. You don't have any kids. Get out of here. All right. And so he gets really, really bummed out and stuff. And he's like, oh, I can't do it. And, you know, woe is me. And I'm exceedingly grieved. And, you know. All right. And so, uh, what happens is then he is, you know, really sad and goes out into the wilderness and the desert and he pitches tent there and he's fasting for 40 days and 40 nights. And he's like, I'm not going to eat. I'm not going to drink. I'm not going to do anything. And, you know, his wife is, and, uh, she is mourning also. And there, and it says, and lamented two lamentations, which is worse than one lamentation. All right. And she doesn't know where he is. She's like, I'm a widow now. My husband's gone. I am childless. You know, everything is, is horrible. Um, you know, and, and saying to God, how long are you going to humiliate my soul? You know, all this stuff. And so, you know, um, the Lord then, you know, uh, appears and, and says to, um, to, uh, Joe, I'm, I'm gonna have to give him another name because Joe Kim is just, Joe Kim is just kind of hard for me to hang on to here. All right. So basically, you know, they're both, they're both praying and Anna, you know, she goes out and she is distraught and she, you know, gazing towards the heavens, she saw a sparrow's nest in the laurel and made a lamentation in herself saying, alas, who begot me and what womb produced me because I have become a curse in the presence of the sons of Israel. I have been reproached and they have driven me in derision out of the temple of the Lord. Alas, to what have I been likened? I am not like the fowls of the heaven because the fowls of the heaven are productive before thee, O Lord. Alas, what have I been likened? I am not like the beasts of the earth because even the beasts of the earth are productive before thee, O Lord. Alas, what have I been likened? I am not like these waters because even these waters are productive before thee, O Lord. Alas, to what have I been likened? I am not like this earth, because even the earth brings forth its fruit in season and blesses thee, O Lord. Again, like I said, Eastern, you know, uh, Eastern style understanding, Eastern mindset. 
Very over the top. All right. And then it goes on to say here, and then an angel of the Lord appeared and said, Anna, um, the Lord hath heard thy prayer. Uh, thou shalt conceive. Now, here's something I, I just want to say parenthetically right now. I don't understand why when this is translated, it's translated in the old English. That just seems to be the thing of what's done. And, I, and I've said before, the stuff that I'm reading out of was done in the late 1800s. So, um, the, I mean, and this would help for, you know, this type of, of, you know, podcasting thing with, with the radio, because, uh, the King James version of the Bible was, was written and translated. We'll get into translations later and, and styles and everything, but it was actually written to be read aloud. That's why it's very poetic and very flowing and very nice sounding, uh, to the ears. So, you know, this sort of thing where it may have been in that vein, but not necessarily for that, because honestly, um, you know, the, the translators of this, uh, I, I don't think that they thought that, you know, people are going to be reading this out loud all the time. This is something that's going to be read privately. But if you are familiar with the King James Version of the Bible, you will understand all these thus thighs, thous, and these. So, um, you know, the Lord uh, heard, heard Anna's prayer and said, she shall conceive and, and bring forth and, and thy seed shall be spoken of in all the world. And Anna said, as the Lord my God liveth, I beget either, if I beget either male or female, I will bring it as a gift to the Lord my God and it shall minister to him in, uh, in holy things all the days of its life. Now, um, this is very remnant of First Samuel. If you're familiar with um, uh, Hannah, uh, Samuel's mother, she was barren also and said the same thing. And, you know, after um, she had weaned Samuel, she gave him over to the Lord in the temple where he was raised and, you know, where he became a, a prophet and you know, have all that stuff going on. So this is like ringing of, you know, that exact same thing. So anybody reading this would say, oh, that sounds, that sounds really familiar. That sort of sounds like, you know, something like Bible-ish in a way. Okay. So, um, you know, then uh, after after she says this, um, then the angels go to uh, Joachim and say, let's just call him Joe. And they go to Joe and, and say to him, hey, Joe, Joe, the Lord God hath heard thy prayer. Go down hence, for behold, thy wife Anna shall conceive. And Joe went down and called his shepherd, saying, uh, bring me hither ten uh, she lambs without spot or blemish, um, and they shall be for the Lord my God, and bring me twelve tender calves, and they shall be for the priests and the elders." And a hundred goats for all the people. And behold, uh, Joe came with his flocks, and Anna stood by the gate and saw Joe coming. And she ran and hung upon his neck, saying, um, Now I know that the Lord God has blessed me exceedingly, for behold, the widow no longer a widow, and I am, uh, and I, the childless, shall conceive. And Joe rested the first day in his house. And the following day he brought his offering, saying to himself, If the Lord God has rendered gracious to me the plate on uh, the priest's forehead will make it manifest to me. And Joe brought his offerings and observed attentively the priest's plate. And when he went up to the altar of the Lord, he saw no sin in himself. And Joe said, Now I know the Lord has been gracious to me. Okay, skip ahead, skip ahead, skip ahead. 
All right, I'm just going to kind of graze over some of this stuff. So um, she conceives, of course, and uh, it's a girl, okay? And she says, my soul's been magnified this day. And it's interesting that she says that that's put in there because in the Song of Mary um, that you read in the Gospels, you know, um, the, the Lord has magnified my soul. Same type of wording there. They're trying to pull on this, you know, uh, understanding that you already have. Um, she laid her down and... Um, after she, um, you know, she named her Mary and then she grew strong. And when she was six months old, her mother set her on the ground, whether, um, you know, to try whether she could stand and she walked seven steps and came to her bosom. So Mary was like miraculously, Oh my goodness. There's something special about this kid. She's six months old. You put her down and she's walking around. She walked over to me seven steps and you know, the number seven, there's something about that and everything. So, um, she snatched her up saying, as the Lord God liveth, thou shalt not walk in this earth until I bring thee to the temple of the Lord. And she made a sanctuary in her bedchamber and allowed nothing common or unclean to pass through her. And she called the undefiled daughters of the Hebrews and they led her away. And when she was a year old, Joe made a great feast and invited the priests and the scribes and the elders and all the people of Israel. Okay. And they brought the child to the priests and all that stuff. And, um, yeah, they're all, you know, impressed with her and everything. And, you know, they, they said, you know, we're, de- we're dedicating her to the Lord, to the temple. And so, um, you know, it says months were added to the child. So in other words, skip ahead, skip ahead, skip ahead. And when the child was two years old, they said, let's take her up to the temple. And, um, Anna said, let's wait for a third year in order that the child may not seek father or mother. And Joe said, okay, let's wait. And so when the child was three, they invited the daughters of the Hebrews that are undefiled, which means virgins, and let them each take a lamp and lamps burning. And they did this big procession and they took her up and they dedicated her to the Lord. And um, in the last days, the Lord will manifest his redemption to the sons of Israel. And he set her down upon the third step of the altar. And the Lord God set grace upon her and she danced with her feet and all the house of Israel loved her. So at three years old, she was dancing and getting down and everyone's like, hooray, you know, because kids at three years old when they're dancing, that's cute. Okay. So, um, you know, her parents, like they marveled at this and, um, you know, and, and Mary was in the temple of the Lord as if she were a dove that dwelt there and she received food from the hand of an angel. And when she was 12 years old, there was a council of priests saying, behold, Mary has reached the age of 12 years in the temple. What then shall we do with her? Lest perchance she defile the sanctuary of the Lord, which means get her period. So they're thinking, Hey, we got to marry her off because she's that age. Hey everyone, thanks for listening to The Theology Pit. Do us a favor and check out our website at samsonstick.com. Tell us what you like or what you don't like and consider making a donation. Just send a buck to show your appreciation. It's more than just money. To us, it's an encouragement. Samsonstick.com. Thanks again. Now back to the show. Okay. So they decide, all right, look, you know, um, all... uh whenever we have these girls here and, you know, they become the age of 12 before they get their period, which, you know, would make the temple unclean, you know, defile it. Uh, we got to get them married off, you know, and get them, get them out of here. So, you know, so they decide, okay, um, let's do this. And, 
you know, what we're going to do is have that happen. But um, they're like, well, you know what? Mary's kind of special here. So what are we going to do with, with, with her? And they said, well, um, what we're going to do is I'm going to go and into the Holy of Holies and I'm going to pray to God and I'm going to figure out what to do. And so the angel of the Lord uh, stood by him and said, um, assemble the widowers of the people and let them each bring his rod. And to whomsoever the Lord shall show a sign, his wife shall she be. And the heralds went out through the circuit of Judea uh, and the trumpet of the Lord sounded and all ran. And Joseph, uh, throwing away his axe, went out to meet them. He got to the assemble. Um, so, you know, what they were doing is that we're going to allow her or we are going to encourage her, in other words, to be ever virgin. Okay. She's ever consecrated to the Lord. So we're going to find a widower and he's just going to take her in. An older man is just going to take her in and more or less raise her like one of his daughters. Okay. And she'll just never marry, but she will be under that protection. And of course she will have, you know, um, uh, the, the siblings, her, I, well, I shouldn't say siblings, his children. Um, so her you know, stepchildren, I guess, would then you know be able to take care of her the rest of her life and that sort of thing. So, hey, this plan, what could go wrong, right? All right, so uh, Joseph shows up and, um, you know, and they, they said, okay, give us all your rods. And they entered the temple and prayed and having ended the prayer, he took the rods and came out and gave them to them. But there was no sign from God. Okay, And Joseph took his last rod, and when he did that, then behold, a dove came out of the rod and flew upon Joseph's head. And the priest said to Joseph, Thou hast chosen by lot to take unto thee the virgin of the Lord. But Joseph refused, saying, I have children, and I'm an old man. She's a young girl. I am afraid, lest I become a laughingstock of the sons of Israel. Because he's like, hey, listen, I'm decrepit, and she's young. You're going to marry off a young 12-year-old girl to me? I'm old, you know? And uh, the priest said to Joseph, fear the Lord God and remember what uh, the Lord did to uh, Dathan and Abram and Korah. And those are all from uh, uh, names from uh, Numbers um, 16, I believe. Um, uh, how the earth opened and they were swallowed up on their account and blah, blah, blah. Now, yeah, Joe feared, Joseph feared and, and was like, all right, fine, I'll, I'll do it and I'll take her. Um and so the council of priests and said, let's make a veil for the temple of the Lord. Uh, Call to me the undefiled virgins of the family of David. And they went up. So then all the virgins that, you know, then went up. And, um, and the priests remembered the child Mary and that she was of the family of David, undefiled before God. And the officers went and brought her. And they brought... Um, they brought them to the temple of the Lord, and the priest said, okay, you're all going to choose uh, some stuff, some... Um, fabric and you're going to spin it and make uh, you know the veil to the lord okay that's you know going to go up and um mary um the, that the lot of true purple and scarlet fell to mary and that's is that that's a royal color okay the purple and everything so you know royalty so you're seeing where this is is going in the story okay um and so um, she took the, the, the scarlet and she spun it. Um, she took the pitcher, went out to fill it with water, and behold, a voice saying, Hail, thou who hast received grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed are thy among women. And she looked around um, on the right 
hand and on the left and went to see where the voice came from. And she went away trembling and she put down the pitcher. And then, you know, the, the angel of the Lord stood before her saying, Fear not, Mary, for thou hast found uh, grace before the Lord. All thou shalt conceive according to his word. Now, you know, uh, I want you to, uh, I'm going to stick this in your mind for a second here, that she's afraid when she sees this angel. And that's going to be significant when we start looking at the other um, apocryphal works. Okay. So she's scared here. All right. When um, the angel shows up or well, I wouldn't say scared, but she, she has fear. Okay. It's, you know, she finds this to be odd. Okay. Um, and she said, and they said, um, you know, he said, fear not Mary for thou hast found grace before the Lord of all and thou shalt conceive according to his word. And she, hearing reason with herself, saying, Shall I conceive by the Lord the living God, and shall I bring forth as every woman brings forth? And the angel of the Lord says, Not so, Mary, for the power of the Lord shall overshadow thee. Wherefore thou also, thou also, wherefore also that holy thing which shall be born of thee shall be called the Son of the Most High. And thou shalt call his name Jesus, and he shall save his people from their sins. And Mary said, Behold, the servant of the Lord, before his face... Let it be unto me according to the word. And she made, you know, purple and scarlet and took them to the priests and blessed her. Um, skip ahead. Okay. Um, you know, this this gets into when Elizabeth, you know, sees her and there's a knock at the door. Um, and when Elizabeth heard her, she threw away her scarlet into the door and opened it. And seeing Mary, she blessed her and said, Whence, um, whence is this to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, that which is in me leaped and, and blessed me. But Mary had forgotten the mysteries of which the archangel Gabriel had spoken and gazed up into heaven and said, Who am I, O Lord? that all the generations of the earth should bless me. And she remained three months with Elizabeth, and day by day she grew bigger, and Mary being afraid when she went to her own house and hid herself from the sons of Israel, and she was 16 years old when these mysteries happened. And, and you know, in her sixth month, Joseph comes back, okay? And he sees that, um, you know, she's pregnant. She's as it says here, she is big with child. And he's like, oh man. It even says that he smote his face and threw himself upon uh, the sackcloth and wept bitterly, saying, um, you know, with what face shall I look upon the Lord my God? And what prayer shall I make about this maiden? Because I received her a virgin out of the temple of the Lord, and I have not watched over her. Um, you know, he was out in the fields, like, you know, he's, a, you know, doing stuff or, or whatever he's doing, you know. Um, at one point, you're going to see that um, they're going to say he's a bad carpenter when we get to the, the end of all of this. They're going to be like, yeah, his, his carpentry work wasn't that great. If it wasn't for Jesus, he would not have been a good car, considered a good carpenter. And when we get into the, um, well, the, the, I guess the Arabic version of the Gospel of Thomas, well, you'll, you'll see that. It's, you know, it'll be kind of funny. Um, but then he's like, he's like, all right, what do I do about this? You know, what's what's happening? Um, you know, has not the history of Adam been repeated in me? For just as Adam was in the hour of his singing praise, and the serpent came and found Eve alone and completely deceived her, so it happened to me also. So he stood up and he's like, okay, what am I going to do? You know, and the uh, the Lord uh, God came to him, uh, or the angel came to him, and um, you know. Uh, uh, well, no, hang on. 
Sorry, I skipped ahead there a little. Uh, he says, you know, what, what have you been done to me? Didn't you receive food from an angel? Like, you know, you are someone who, you know, is of God. You were, you were chosen. Um, and she said, I'm innocent. I have not known a man. Just said to her, whence then is that which is in thy womb? And she said, as the Lord God liveth, I do not know whence it is to me. Which really sounds funny in the English to me, just the wording of it. I mean, I can imagine this argument taking place in this old English here. And Joseph was greatly afraid and and retired. It never considered to him, hey, maybe she, you know, was was fooling around. She's a 16-year-old girl, you know? He was just like, she's like, nope, don't know what happened. And he's like, oh, no, well, what's going on then? I don't know how this sort of thing could happen. So anyways, um, he's afraid because he's like, I don't want to expose her because, you know, something bad might happen. And I don't want to, like, put her away. I, I don't know what to do. Um, but I am afraid, least uh, giving her up from an angel. And I shall be found um, giving up innocent blood to the doom of death. What then shall I do with her? Put her away from me secretly? And night came. He was going to do that. Uh, angel you know, came to him and said, hey, don't do that. Um, and so uh, Joseph said, because I'm weary from my journey. Uh, da, 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 da. Anyways, townspeople find out. Priests find out and everything, right? And they're, they're brought up to the... Um, you know, they're, they're brought up to the temple. And the priests are all like... Dude, we gave her to you because you wouldn't get her pregnant. You went and got her pregnant, right? And jo- I mean, what's Joseph going to say? He's just like, oh man, listen, you know, um, uh, he just burst into tears. He just starts crying. And the priest said, all right, look, I will give you the drink. I will give to you um, to drink of the water of the ordeal of the Lord. And he shall make manifest your sins in your eyes. And the priest took the water and gave to Joseph to drink and sent him away to the hill country. Basically, he gave him poison. So he's like, fine, you know what? We're going to let the Lord decide this, okay? If you are sinning by doing this because you're acting like you didn't do anything wrong, we'll let God decide. So here, you drink this poison, go away to the hills. All right, and so he did. Drank the poison, went away to the hill country, and then he returned unhurt. And they're like, oh, okay. And so then they figured, well, Mary's the one who's lying. So they give her poison, okay? And and then they send her away to the hill country, and she returns unhurt. And all the people wonder that sin did not appear in them. And the priest said, if the Lord God has not made manifest your sins, neither do I judge you. And he sent them away, and Joseph took Mary and went away to his own house, rejoicing and glorifying God in Israel. So I guess everyone's cool with it now. They're like, hey, you drank poison, you're good. Because, you know, nothing's better for a pregnant woman than a nice bowl of poison. Okay, so um, then there came the order from the emperor that, you know, the, the census is taking place. So, um, you know, Joseph and Mary go to, to Bethlehem and Joseph's like, all right, well, how do I enroll her? You know, he's like, I'm going to enroll my sons and everything, but what do I do with her? I mean, is, is she my wife? All right. A- am I, am I ashamed as, you know, cause she's so young and, and pregnant or as my daughter then, because all the sons of Israel know that she's not my daughter. Like, I don't know what to do. So, you know, Set up, they take off, they they leave, right? All right, they're on the way there. Um, 
And uh, Joseph turned and saw her laughing and said to her, Mary, how is it that I see in thy face one time laughter, another time sorrow? And Mary said to Joseph, because I see two peoples with my eyes, one weeping and lamenting and the other rejoicing and exalting. And then they came to the middle of the road and Mary said to him, take me down off the donkey um, for that which is in me presses to come forth. means, hey, I'm going to give birth. And so they found a cave. Okay, and there he led her into it, and leaving his two sons beside her, he went to seek a midwife in the district of Bethlehem. So Joseph went walking, and he had to find um, this midwife. Okay, and he did it. Let's see, eating, uh, rising, did not carry up. Okay, I'm sorry, I'm skipping ahead here. Okay. And I saw a woman coming down from the hill country, and she said to me, Oh man, where art thou going? And he said, I am seeking a Hebrew midwife. And she answered and said unto me, Art thou of Israel? And I said to her, Yes. And she said, And who is it that is bringing forth in the cave? And I said, A woman betrothed to me. And she said to me, Is she not thy wife? And I said to her, It is Mary that was reared in the temple of the Lord, and I obtained her by lot as my wife. And yet she is not my wife, but has conceived of the Holy Spirit. And the midwife said to him, Is this true? And Joseph said to her, Come and see. And the midwife went with him, and they stood in the place of, of the cave. And behold, a luminous cloud overshadowed the cave. And the midwife said, My soul has been magnified this day because mine eyes have seen strange things, because salvation has been brought forth to Israel, and immediately the cloud disappeared out of the cave, and a great light shone in the cave, and the eyes could not bear it. And in a little, that light gradually decreased, and the infant appeared. And when they took the breast, and when he, and when it took the breast of his mother Mary, and the midwife cried out and said, "This is a great day to me because I have seen this strange sight." And the midwife went forth to the cave, and Salome met her, and she said to Salome, and she said to her, "Salome, Salome, I have seen strange sight to relate to thee. A virgin has brought forth a thing which her nature admits not of." Then Salome, as the Lord my God liveth, unless I thrust my finger, unless I thrust in my finger and search the parts, I will not believe that the virgin has brought forth. In other words, I want to physically check myself, okay? I'm going to, you know, do like a OBGYN here, and I am going to check. So, the midwife went in and said to Mary, show thyself, for no small controversy has arisen about thee. And Salome put in her finger and cried out and said, Woe is me for mine iniquity and my unbelief, because I have tempted the living God, and behold, my hand is dropping off as burnt with fire. And she bent to her knees before the Lord, saying, O God, my fathers, remember that I am the seed of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. Do not make a show of me to the sons of Israel, but restore me to the, to the poor." For thou knowest, O Lord, that thy name, again, you know, Eastern mindset, you know, screaming and everything. But think about it when they're, you know, when, you know, the understanding of Mary ever virgin and Joseph never laid with her. Hey, here's the reason why this woman just wanted to check to see if she's still out of hymen because she didn't believe her. And, you know, now her hand is falling off as burnt with fire. So make that connection yourself. Okay. And so... 
Behold, the angel of the Lord stood by her, saying, Salome, Salome, the Lord hath heard thee. Put thy hand to the infant and carry it, and thou wilt have safety and joy. And Salome uh, went and carried it, saying, I will worship him, because a great king has been born in Israel. And behold, Salome was immediately cured and went forth out of the cave justified. And behold, a voice saying, Salome, Salome, tell not the strange things thou hast seen until the child has come into Jerusalem. And so, then Joseph and Mary were getting ready to go to Judea, and this is where the Magi come and everything, but, you know, what you're seeing here, I mean, there's a big, there's this big focus on Mary, and this big focus on her being ever virgin, and, you know, what's going on with the virgin birth, and this is very important in Mariology, and this type of Mariology um, starts developing in um, the times of, you know, I would say like second, third, fourth centuries. There are uh, writings that I've read which are um, pseudepigraphal letters of Mary. And it's like Mary, like back and forth. It's almost like correspondence between her and other people wanting to come and see her. And there is this great like Mary adoration and things that kind of go back into the Old Testament if you think about... Um, you know, like uh, like with Bathsheba and uh, and Solomon, like they would, uh, people would approach Bathsheba so that she could approach the king, like on their behalf, and you know, petition something. So they're kind of putting Mary in the same role. So you can get a feel by the emphasis and the way they're talking about Mary how far into the dogma of Mariology you have in the church at this time. And this is, this is one way we use internal evidence to kind of date, like when this stuff uh, was going on because of the way they're talking, the way they think. And you'll see as we go on, I, I can't believe I'm spending almost the entire pit on this one, um, on this one book because I wanted to get through a lot of the other ones. I wanted to get through almost all of them here. But anyways, um, so, uh, uh, see the Magi come and they're, they're wanting to know where the King is born. And of course, you know, they're, they're talking to Herod and Herod's like, Hey, why don't you go find this, you know, Christ child so that, you know, I may worship him too. You know, that, that story, if you know that. And, um, so they go and they worship and then they leave and they don't tell, you know, um, Herod. So Herod gets upset and, you know, he's been mocked by the Magi and he's like, all right, fine. Slay all the children, kill all the children from the ages of two year and under. And Mary, having heard, um, the children were being killed and were afraid, took the infant, swaddled him and put him into an ox stall. And Elizabeth, having heard that they were searching for John because he was, you know, uh, that age also, uh, John the Baptist, that is, um, took him and went up to the hill country and, you know, and, stayed hid and everything concealed um and the the having the mountain you know because the soldiers were looking for them and everything the mountain of god then received the child all right received the mother and child and immediately the mountain was cleft and received her and the light shone about them for the angel of the lord was with them watching over them and Herod searched for John and sent the officers to um, Zacharias's house, saying, Where hast thou hid thy son? And he answering said to them, I am a servant of the, um, God in the holy things. I sit constantly in the temple of the Lord. I do not know where my son is. And the officers went away and reported all these things to Herod. And Herod was enraged and said, His son is destined to be king over Israel. And said to him again, saying, Tell the truth, where is the son? For thou knowest that the life that life is in my hand. And Zacharias said, I am God's 
Lord's martyr, if thou sheddeth my blood, for the Lord will receive my spirit, because thou sheddeth innocent blood at the vestibule of the temple of the Lord. And Zacharias was murdered about daybreak. And the sons of Israel did not know that he had been murdered. But at the hour of the salutation, the priests went away, and Zacharias did not come forth to meet them with a blessing, according to his custom. And the priests stood waiting for Zacharias to salute him at the prayer and to glorify the Most High. And he is still delaying, and they were all afraid. But one of them ventured to go in, and they saw clotted blood beside the altar, and heard a voice saying, Zacharias has been murdered, and his blood shall uh, not be wiped up until his avenger come. And hearing this, he was afraid and went out and told it to the priests. And they ventured in and saw what had happened. And the fretwork of the temple made a wailing noise. And they rent their clothes from, from top even to the bottom. And they found not his body, but they found blood turned into stone. And they were afraid and went out and reported to the people that Zacharias had been murdered. And all the tribes of the people heard and mourned and lamented for him for three days and three nights. And after three days and three nights, the priest considered to whom they should put in place, and the lot fell upon Simeon, for it was said, uh, for it was he who had been warned by the Holy Spirit that he should not see death until he should see the Christ in the flesh. Okay, and that of um, you know with with Simeon, of course, happened in uh, Luke chapter two. So you know the author of the Proto-Evangelium of James here is um, you know, taking that imagery and saying they're they're figuring that the Holy Spirit told them that you know Simeon is the one that who, who's not going to see death um, so he'll be okay we'll put him in there and and he'll live okay and then it says and I James that wrote this history in Jerusalem this is a very key thing in um you know in these gnostic gospels right here the author is naming himself as james to give credibility to his writing matthew does not have that uh the gospel of john probably comes the closest when it says the the beloved disciple john doesn't even mention himself in um the gospel of john he not not even as a disciple not even in like the third person as his name or anything just as you know the beloved disciple or the disciple that uh jesus had loved or the one who had you know laid his head upon you know the breast of christ or anything like i mean you know he doesn't they, he the, the thing about the apostles is that they drew back so much from taking anything away from christ and that is a big difference. The reason why you have Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and Acts, and Luke and Acts, you know, written by the same author, and the reason why people know is because they didn't do this in a vacuum. They still wrote it. They had disciples themselves. They had people who knew, and the names got attached to it. But in their writings, it was characteristic that they did not put their own names in. So whenever you see these things, um, these Gnostic Gospels, where you know they're they're naming themselves as the writer and as this, they're they're doing it to establish a type of plagiarism off their name, their you know the legitimacy of it. And I, I talked about that in the last pit, uh, you know, sort of what that meant. But it says a commotion has risen. Uh, uh, a commotion having arisen when Herod died, uh, withdrew myself to the wilderness until the commotion in Jerusalem ceased, glorifying the Lord God who had given me the gift of the wisdom to write this history. Um, 
that my I have a note here saying, um, assuming this is among the most ancient uh, of the apocryphal gospels, it is noteworthy that the writer abstains from elaborating his statements on points fully narrated in the canonical gospels. So again, if this was a well, let me let me just read it off and finish here. Um, and grace shall be with them that fear the Lord Jesus Christ to be uh, to whom be the glory of to to him uh, to whom be glory to ages of ages amen all right so that's the end of the proto evangelium of James now what you're what you're noticing here is that if this was something that was written as a contemporary with the other gospels we said before Mark was written first and Matthew and Luke were using um, Mark as a template, so to speak. And Mark is a template from um, you know, Peter's sermon in Acts, which had taken place. So before you know, there was Acts that was written, it obviously occurred because Mark was you know, using that particular sermon as an outline from Peter. So Mark was written under the authority of Peter. Uh, Matthew being an apostle, Luke being an associate of an apostle, the apostle Paul, were writing and using his as a template. And where Mark doesn't write things, Matthew and Luke, you can see they don't go in wildly different directions, but they emphasize different things and, you know, things are in um, you know, different orders, that, that sort of thing. Um, but they don't they don't quote each other. They are, you know, in a way quoting Matthew or quoting Mark, but they're not quoting each other. And John is written independently, but he's very focused on Christ and he's aware of the other gospels. This writer seems to be aware of everything and is, you know, writing stuff in there and um, making a lot of stuff up um, through legend based on um, dogmas and presuppositions of that time period. For example, uh, the presupposition of Mary being ever virgin. Now, whether or not you believe that Mary was a, a virgin for all time is is beside the point. Um, I, I can say that I do, but I have other reasons for it. But to then anachronistically write and really stress that and and say those things is is disingenuous. It's it's something that shows that this is not. Uh, something that is on par with the other Gospels. And there again, there are other reasons why we hold to the 27 books of the New Testament. But I, I want to start here, and I, I wish I could have gotten through this more. I'm going to have to really get some notes together and, and review this um, next week and then go through because what you're going to see, and I, I hope you paid attention during this pit, and, and I, I spent a lot of time in this. This is one of the, the shorter ones, but I spent a lot of time in this because this is the oldest of this story, of this version. Now, a lot of people say that the Bible it has just been changed over time. It was something that was written and it was changed and we don't know. And we went over the intentional errors and the unintentional errors and you saw how minute they were. I've gone over this story with you. You've, I've kind of hit the highlights of it. Now, as we go into the other ones that, that come up, the, the Gospel of Pseudo-Matthew, okay, um, you will see the not only the later dating of it, but how it kind of springboards off of the Proto-Evangelium of James. 
Okay. And each gospel is like, or each one that's written here is, is written as though it is, you know, building off of the last one. You will have the gospel, um, nativity of Mary and stuff and the history of Joseph, the carpenter. And then we'll get to the gospel of Thomas. And what you're going to see is that they're taking the story and they're rewriting it and rewriting it. And they're using some of the parts, but they're elaborating on it. And I, I know I hear the music, but they're elaborating on it. And it is this evolution. What people accuse the New Testament of having done, which evidence shows that it didn't do, of evolving and changing over time, the Gnostic Gospels actually do. You can actually see them evolving and changing over time and elaborating on themselves. It's a huge, it's a huge thing. It's a, it's a huge deal and it's it's definitely one to pay attention to. But look, email me, Samson to SamsonStick.com. Visit me, SamsonStick.com. Facebook. It's now time to close down the pit. Thank you. Thank you.